Hey, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of the Man of Screen podcast. With Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice just days away, we're going to take a look at the film that started the DC Extended Universe of Films, Man of Steel, which came out in 2013 and it was directed by Zack Snyder. Now, this was a film that divided Superman fans greatly from... This film came out on the heels of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, which was enjoyed and reviled for its realistic take. I use realistic in air quotes because how realistic can a guy in a giant bat costume be? But for the take that grounded the film in reality. So with Nolan producing and his writer from the Dark Knight movies, David Goya, writing the screenplay, the tone to Man of Steel was very much of a Superman Begins, kind of a la Batman Begins from eight years earlier. This film starred Henry Cavill as Clark Kent and Kal-El. He really wasn't called Superman at all in this film. The word Superman was actually only mentioned twice, and we'll get to that later. It, stars, it also stars Amy Adams as Lois Lane, Michael Shannon as General Zod, Diane Lane as Martha Kent, Russell Crowe as Jor-El. I'm going to butcher her name. Anje Trau as Feora who was Zod's right hand. Harry Lennox was General Swanwick. Richard Schiff was Dr. Emil Hamilton. Christopher Maloney was Colonel Nathan Hardy. And Kevin Costner played the role of Jonathan Kent, a role that was a subject of some great controversy after the film came out. Additionally, Ayala Zora played the role of Laura Larvan, and Lawrence Fishburne was Perry White. There are also short contributions from Dylan Sprayberry, who played Clark Kent at 13, and Cooper Timberline, who played Clark at 9. Now, like I mentioned before, this was a film that split the fan base. Coming out seven years after Brian Singer's Superman Returns, the fan base cried f- for a more action-oriented Superman. Well, Zack Snyder delivered that in spades, and as per fanboys, they got angry about it. And I know that's a very simplistic... Uh, recollection of what happened, but the film and its portrayal of Superman drew a line straight down the middle. And it's kind of kind of disappointing that friendships were in some cases broken over the over this movie, over the arguments that this movie generated, you know. It's the last thing a character like Superman would have wanted. You know, we can disagree with the film all we want, but at the end of the day, it is just a movie as I sit here and make a podcast about it. Well, anyway, I'm going to be honest, I enjoyed the film for what it was. And obviously that for what it was sounds kind of like a disclaimer. But one thing the film asks, and we're going to get, like I said, we'll get more into this later during the commentary. But it wants you to check all of your previous Superman knowledge at the door. And I don't think that's something a lot of fans were prepared to do. I mean, we all have our image of Superman in our minds, whether it's Christopher Reeve, George Reeves, the post-crisis Superman, which I read during my teen years for most of the core of my comic book collecting, or even the Superman the Animated Series. To each of us, we have that one interpretation of the character that speaks to us. Like I said, because of my upbringing and because I came to Superman mostly from screen origins, I came to the comics later in life, I guess I'm a little more tolerant of different interpretations of the character. I don't know. I wish we could all be... A little more open-minded about it, and just get along. We don't all have to like the film, but we can at least disagree, respectively, without mudslinging, cursing, and deleting people from Facebook. But I'm going to save that sermon for another time. I really don't have the energy to discuss that, and and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself and not leave room for me to speak during the commentary. 
So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a quick break and play a promo. And then we're going to come back with Man of Steel. Karel, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at Two True Freaks. Com. All right, folks, welcome back. And at this point, I have my DVD queued to zero, 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 zero on the clock. I'm going to count back from three. When I say go, we're going to start watching Man of Steel. Ready? Three, two, one, go. All right, we're starting to get the Warner Brothers logo. It's coming up in that design that becomes very reminiscent of Krypton in these films. Here comes Legendary Pictures, who whose deal, I believe, expired with... Uh, Time Warner after this film came out. There's the modern DC logo. I'll be honest, I missed the old bullet logo from when I was a kid. The uh, DC wrapped in the circle with the stars. And Sin Copy. No, the fun thing is coming from everywhere in this in that film. And we start off, and we're in labor. Well, no, I'm not in labor. I don't know if you are, but she is. When they said they were going back to the very beginning, they weren't kidding. They went back to the they went back to the beginning. As we can see, Lara here giving birth to Kal-El. You know, and they're all alone. This is going to become something very important to the story of the film 
as this Krypton, at least their culture, was based very much on the John Byrne post-crisis reboot, which saw Krypton become a very cold and sterile society, as we see our first glimpse of baby Kal-El, looking pretty gross, as all babies do, and I can attest to that, being a witness of the birth of my daughter four years ago. And he's screaming, and the big animal there screams, the Savior is born. Well, anyway, this is definitely the most... Well, the yellow sun there. Krypton pulls up a red sun. Alright, so anyway, this is the most lifelike Krypton we've ever seen. Right now, I got Jarrell doing what he does, explaining that the planet is doomed. You know, heavy is the head that wears the giant peacock, it looks like. Well, they'll explain later in the film that Krypton used to colonize the stars, but has since pulled back to focus just on the planet. Jor-El is trying to convince them to revive the space program because the planet is dying. And as he's talking to the Council, he's attacked. We're about to get our first glimpse of General Zod coming up here, and there he is. A very cool shot coming out from the smoke. One thing about Zack Snyder is, you can say what you want about his visuals. I mean, you can say what you want about his writing and directing, and well, there she goes. And, uh, you know, he, the man knows how to make, how to frame a shot. Now, Jarrell is uh, opposing Zod here. The only one who seems to have the guts to do so, as they're fighting over which bloodlines will survive the coming apocalypse. We'll find out later that that's the only thing the two, that the two characters actually agree upon. Russell Crowe gave a very strong performance as Jarrell, I thought. I was kind of surprised when he was cast, but you can see that he's getting a little long in the tooth a little bit, but he pulls off a convincing Jarrell. This is a Jarrell that is a scientist. He was bred in the Kryptonian ways of in the in the birthing matrix. And he's already He's about to tell Zod here that he and Lara have had a child naturally. And he sees that as the next great hope for Krypton. Now, I don't... I don't know how... I'm assuming that Kryptonians are pregnant for nine months like humans are. Did they leave Lara in a room by herself all this time? Now we're getting to see a little bit of a Jor-El action hero, which we've never seen in live action. We saw a little bit of this in the Superman animated series, as he was chased out of Brainiac by the Kryptonian security forces. Like I said before, this is the most lifelike version of Krypton we've seen on screen in live action. The... Uh, it's a sharp contrast to what we saw in the Richard Donner movie from 1978, where we saw a crystal glow, 
some buildings built into the ice and a white dome. Here, this is a planet that has life. Jorel's got this Rondor, I believe it's called. Uh, looks like a giant firefly. Giant dragonfly, rather. And he's riding that. And and Jarrell's about to commit a Class B felony as he goes after the Codex. Here's a nice shot right here. Jarrell diving off of the Rondor right into the right into the water. Apparently, his suit is uh, waterproof. And you know, like I said, Jarrell is a man of action here. That's a nice shot of the Genesis Chamber. That you can see the robots tending to the uh, un. Kryptonian Unborn. At least I think that's a robot. But this is... He's going to find the Codex in a minute here. It's this little... Skull thing. And that's... You see it right there. Giving energy to the... Birthing Matrix. And he... Now, I... The energy dissipates as Jarrell pulls the codex down. Uh, does that mean the machines stop working? Did he just kill all all those babies, all those unborn babies? Well, I guess it doesn't matter because, in his own words, the world is coming to an end. And he's up. Oh, and General Zod trying to arrest him again because now Zod is in power. And he's attacking. Now, unlike Jarrell, who was bred to be a scientist, Zod was... Nice catch by the Rondor. Zod was bred to be a soldier. So, in that light, it would be very difficult to believe that Jarrell would be able to hold his ground in any way against Zod in a fight. But... Clearly, he does. Jarrell here is, like I said several times already, a man of action. And he's flying through here. These shots of Krypton are just beautiful. And his steed is uh, wounded here. And it's just going to be enough to get him home. Where we're going to see him in a minute start to download the codex into Kalal. Here's the classic scene where they discuss what they're going to do with Kalal. Jarrell's going to telling Lara about the powers he expects to have from the Earth's solar radiation. As a mother would be, Lara's worried about the safety of her son, where Jarrell is far less concerned about this, basically saying that Cal is going to be a god to the people. Lara is. Lara is understandably apprehensive about sending Kal-El off into space, but. I think she even realizes here that staying there is just as deadly for him. She's. Since Lara is stalling for time here, either 
procrastinating or giving Zod some time. To get there, I will go and say she is procrastinating because I know of no mother that wants to be separated from their child for so long. You can... Ayala Zoro is one of the unsung heroes of this sequence as uh, she captured the sadness of a mother who is about to send her child off into the vastness of space alone. And, she, you know, she knows, she believes in Jorel, that she knows what her fate is, and she is reluctantly accepting it. And that'll be important for what's about to come later. All right, now here we go. Jorel is providing us with the MacGuffin for the film right here. As he download, uh, these energy beams are downloading the Kryptonian Codex into Clark's, into Kal-El's DNA. That's a cool shot of the S symbol coming out of the key there. I like that a lot. That's like the Kryptonian flash drive, so to speak. And it went in rather easily. I wish, I wish I had my my computer cooperated like that. And Jarrell is sending him off. Lara is, like I said, understandably upset. And they're getting ready for liftoff. Rising toward the ship. And the ship catches them. I like the way this thing closes around them. The technology of Krypton is looks very organic. And again, I'm struck by the fact that Krypton has a yellow sun as Krypton's sun has been red for as long as I've been reading Superman comics. Why it's yellow here, I don't know. But, nope, here comes here comes Zod now. They know what Jarrell's done. But I don't think he... He doesn't quite understand why. And he... You know what? He doesn't care. His job is to enforce the law, which is now his law, and he's very single-minded in that. He's not going to let anybody get in his way. And here comes uh, his assistant there, his second, Feora All, Commander Feora All. Thank you, Zod, for reminding me. And you know, they're walking in, and Jarrell comes out of the smoke like that. Very beautiful shot. Jarrell is not going to surrender. He's not. He's not going to have it, and he is going to raise up arms against Zod. And here he just informed Zod of Krypton's first natural birth in centuries. Zod is freaked out by this because he was only known. He is only known and only willing to believe that Kryptonians should be born through the birthing matrix. And because of that, he has ordered his men to attack. And that's a nice size scar that Jarrell's going to leave on him for the rest of the movie. But like I said, it is hard to believe that a scientist could hold his own in hand-to-hand -hand combat against somebody who's been trained since birth. But... Being that Jarrell was Maverick enough, and his wife too, but for that matter, Maverick enough to 
have a child naturally to escape Krypton's past, I guess it's not that much of a stretch to uh, believe that he picked up the Kryptonian fighting arts along the way and is able to hold his own. Like I said before, you you saw the reluctance in Lara to put Kal-El in the ship and to send him off into space. So it's only fitting that in order to protect him from Zod, she's the one who launches, who launches Kal-El into space. In every other incarnation, it's been Jor-El to do it. But I think Lara doing it is very powerful here. And Zod is pissed. And he stabs Jarrell because apparently the, the planet doing doing it for him is not enough. Zod is gonna take care of business here, and Jarrell just falls falls over, and that's kind of the end of him. Not even a whimper. I like the costumes, and I don't know what what the what's gonna happen going going forward here. But these Kryptonian battle armors give me a very Lex Luthor power suit vibe. So I can only wonder in future films if we'll see Lex Luthor wearing something similar to this. We, well, I'm not going to get into too much of Batman v Superman right now, but we have seen some things to indicate that Luthor might get his hands on some Kryptonian technology. Or at least Kryptonian corpse. And this ship has taken an awful long time to, to launch into space. You would think it would uh, be there by now. Oh, and just, just as they're about to shoot the ship down, apparently uh, the rightful government has uh, taken over. And Zod and his cohorts are captured. Now, one of the problems with this film involves pacing. It, well, not so much here, because that long dissolve kind of gives the indication that some time has passed between Zod's arrest on the platform and his courtroom here. So, maybe a few weeks have passed. A few, at the very least, a few days. Now, Zod is angry. He's spitting at the people. Again, heavy is the head that wears the giant crowns here. Everything in Krypton is so, is so intricate. Zod is menacing as he's making sure Lara knows that his mission is going to be to find Kal-El and find the Codex. And I remember seeing this I will find him delivery and trailers and just thinking, oh my god, he's gonna be that kind of he's gonna channel Terrence Stamp and I was very happy to see that this version of Zod didn't go the old seventies route of where the Terrence Stamp version of Zod and that this Zod was at the core, trying to do what he thought was best for Krypton. In Superman 2, Zod's motivations were very much two-dimensional, to rule, only to rule. 
the World Engine is. I think that's the World Engine. That's a beautiful ship. That's the Black. Actually, that's the Black Zero. That's uh, going to come into play later on, and it's about to take them into the into the Phantom Zone. As you can see, Krypton's got lots of stuff in space here, and the image of the ship going into the energy of the Phantom Zone is striking lots and lots of electric current and this is going to be the last we see of Zod and his people for a while I'm sure we'll come back to them later now again the planet is falling apart now Lara is got her hair down, she's at home She's looking at Jarrell's suit. I don't know if this is that afternoon or is it two weeks, two months. There's no way to know how much time has passed, but it seems like some has. And and you know what? In the face of the end of the world, Lara is a lot calmer than I would be in... I guess at this point she's lost everything. She's lost the man she loved. She lost her son to the stars. So she probably doesn't feel as though she has much left to live for. As we see the fire come in and engulf her. And the planet is going to explode right now. So, if you're keeping up with me, I I just watched Planet Krypton explode. And... Nice shot of... Look at that Saturn. As Kal-El's spaceship comes into our solar system, toward our yellow sun. I love how the music ratches up as, he, as his ship approaches the moon and then finally Earth. Hans Zimmer's... Score fit the film, but there's nothing memorable about it. And the ship, you see the ship crashing and about to crash into the ground, and we have a very hard cut. And I mean very hard. This is one of the problems with the mechanics of the film, is that the ship was crashing into the, into the Ken farm, and now we're on a fishing boat somewhere. And... You don't know why we're on a fishing boat. We're seeing these guys working on a fishing boat. If you haven't been paying attention to the trailers, you're not sure who this guy in the beard that he helped up is. But that is our first look at Greenhorn, played by Henry Cavill. He is on a quest to find out who he is, so apparently that mission has brought him onto this fishing boat. And they just received word about an oil rig about to... that, that is on fire and is going to explode. And in pure Superman fashion, Greenhorn, as he's called right now, is gone. Now here's a, here's a couple shots that are basically for the ladies. As Henry, as Clark, pulls open the 
door there, and he is on fire with no shirt on. Apparently, this was Zack Snyder's way of showing the people who complained that Brandon, Brandon Routh wasn't muscular enough that Henry Cavill worked his ass off to jack himself up to be Superman. And you can see, even without costume, he is doing his best to save people. It's clear that his strength isn't what it will become later, as we see this tower crashing down. And he's struggling to hold it up. There's another shot for the ladies, as we see his chest and abs. And the first of many cavil screams that we're going to get throughout the course of this film was right there. But everything is, the action here is so drawn out as he's struggling to hold up the uh, tower and the helicopter flies away in the nick of time. And they assume that he did not make it. Because why would you assume that he would? And another sign that his powers are somewhat underdeveloped for a man over 30 is that he is sleeping and remembering Smallville. Apparently being <laughs> stuck in the water reminds him of the day his x-ray vision and super hearing uh, seemed to uh, develop. And this is our nine-year-old Clark played by Cooper Timberline. He, you can see he is generally freaked out here. And you know what? Looking at these images, I'd be freaked out too if I was seeing everybody's Muscle, muscle under their skin and hearts beating and hearing everything. He's clearly going through some sensory overload here and does what anyone else would do, run away. And he's hiding from the closet. And again, this movie... Doesn't do a very good job of showing how much time has passed. Did that first shot of heat vision. As she as he heats up the doorknob and burns her hand. But like I said, it's another poor job of the film showing the passage of time because the film makes it appear that this all happened in a few minutes, but clearly at least some time has passed. At least enough time for Martha to get from the Kent farm to to his school. Which I mean, when I have to go somewhere, it takes me at least five minutes to get my coat on. So, it had to be at least 10, 15 minutes. And why is the teacher letting all the kids hang out outside the door? There's a nice bit with his mother, where she's helping him get his newly burgeoning abilities under control. Great performance by Diane Lane throughout the film. She was definitely one of the highlights. Every uh, past incarnation of Superman has really highlighted the relationship, especially Smallville, between Clark and his father, but we've had Blessed Lil involving Clark and his mother. Alright, and now uh, the humpback whales are going to wake Clark up. There is a fan theory out there. It's been out there since this film came out, and since it was announced that there would be further uh, films in the, in the DC Extended Universe that the whales were sent by Aquaman. 
to wake him up, but there's really no nothing to lend any weight to that. Alright. Here's a scene that people complain about a lot. Here's Clark half naked out of the water and he is looking for clothes. Rebecca Johnson of Supergirl Radio mentioned that she believed these clothes were being given away, but I don't know. There's nothing here that, aside from the guy, owner of the vehicle, bringing the, the groceries to the woman in the house, there's nothing that there that indicates that those clothes were meant for charity. And now we're going to see a school bus, and that's going to trigger another flashback of a bus riding through Smallville. Now we've got Dylan Sprayberry, or, yep, Sp Dylan Sprayberry as the 13-year-old Clark Kent. This black-haired girl here is Lana. Um, Pete is just being a jerk. That's supposed to be Pete Ross, and for someone who, throughout comics history, were Clark's best was Clark's best friend, he'd act like a bit of a dick. Maybe that friendship starts here. As the bus crashes into the water. This guy was just looking. No cell phones yet, I guess, in his time, so... According to the, the tombstone, Clark was 18 in about 1997. So this is probably somewhere in the early 90s before the cell phones came, were developed for mass use. And... Here we got a nice shots of the Smallville bus driving. Here's a great shot coming up right here of the bus coming out from in from the water. I I, I love moments like that where you, know, you just see the object and not him. You know, it can be iconic. You know, like I said, if nothing else, Zack Snyder is a very good visual director. You know, and Clark did the one thing he wasn't supposed to do. Let somebody see him be use his abilities. And then because of Clark's strong morals, he can't let anyone die, so he's going to dig Pete out of the water and drag him to, to shore. And Pete knows it. Maybe, maybe Pete's going to be a little bit nicer to him. And now Pete's mother is reporting what happened. Pete looks genuinely freaked out. The Pete's mom thinks it's an act of God. Jonathan's trying to downplay it. This is the first our first look at Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent. This portrayal of Jonathan Kent, as we're going to see in a few minutes, is very at odds with previous portrayals. Like I said earlier. This movie really asked Superman fans to leave their preconceptions of other versions of the characters at the door, and this was hard a hard thing to ask for people who, who are fans of a character for 75 years to do that. So Jonathan is understand is upset here. The only thing he cares about is protecting his his family and protecting Clark. 
and Clark suggests that should she let them die, and Jonathan struggles, but he says maybe. You know, a lot of people took exception to him saying maybe in that situation. But, you know what? You can tell in Kevin Costner's acting that he's conflicted about it. He doesn't want to see anybody die any more than Clark does. But he's trying to look at he's trying to look at the bigger picture. He knows that it's inevitable that Clark is going to one day reveal himself to the world. And he's trying to put that off as much as he can, as we'll find out later, because he believes the world's not ready. And whether anyone's ready or not, Clark is about to learn that he is not of this earth. As he uncovers the spaceship. Apparently, nobody came. It's possible that nobody actually knew that the ship landed. You know, Smallville, when it aired, used the, the meteor shower to, not only as a plot device for its uh, Villains of the Week for the first season or two, but it also used it in, in an attempt to cover the, uh, the ship's entry into Earth so that nobody would notice that Clark landed. I prefer, I pref one thing I preferred about Superman Birthright from the comics that Mark Wade, uh, the comic series that Mark Wade put out in the early 2000s was that the ship had some kind of cloaking technology that hum the human sensors wouldn't be able to detect. And that made it easier for Clark's ship to detect, to land this mobile undetected. This is probably, or anyway, this scene here is probably the best acting Kevin Costner has done in this film, where he is explaining to Clark that he's going to have to make a choice whether he's going to, you know, reveal him, stand proud as Superman, or if, or if he's going to hide. And that I am your son, that, you know. I have a stepson who I don't see as often as I like because of just some things that went down. You know, when he says that he is my son, even if he's not here, and, you know, I empathize with Jonathan there. Even though Clark's not of his blood, Clark is his son, and that's very much the way I feel about my stepson when he lived with us, and I still do, even though he's gone. I'm not gone, gone. He's living, he lives with his father now. Hopefully one day he'll hear this commentary and he'll know that. Anyway, here is Clark working at his little diner somewhere, I guess, in, somewhere in Canada or Alaska. These truckers are being a bunch of pigs as, some, as Clark is doing his best. I, I like this scene a little bit. As this... It just seems like Clark looks... just lets them throw the beer on him, and he's just taking it. Because he's trying to hide 
his abilities. But you can see in Cavill's acting that he's getting that he's getting pissed. <laughs> I like how the how the trucker just bounces off of him. And instead of getting mad about it, he is just going to leave. And he's just, he just taking it. Which, uh, he can't do anything about it, which makes it worse. Well, actually, he can do something about it, and he's going to do something about it. Here comes the trucker, and... I laughed when I saw this in the theater of the, tr the mangled truck in the utility poles, but, you know, how come nobody heard that? You know, he had to have made some noise while uh, rearranging that truck into the light pole. But that's neither here nor there. He just failed hitchhiking. 101. And now we're moving on even further north, and there she is in all her glory. Amy Adams as Lois Lane, bundled up in a parka because she is... Oh, this Cavill right there. You know, the first time I when I saw this in the theaters, it slipped my mind that Clark was the one who lowered her out of the plane. Right back here, she calls back to Joe that the bags are heavy. And he's like, oh, all right, he's just whipping them around like, like nothing. People don't like... Some people have objected to Adams' portrayal about Lois Lane, but I don't know. I don't have a problem with it. You know, she's doing what needs to be done. She's investigating. She's hard-nosed. She's not taking no for an answer. She's... You know, she's pulled a surprise on him because she wanted to get there before they started wheeling out the presentation for her. So, so she's got one over on them, and she knows it. And uh, I mean, Hamilton, like Hamilton, smirking as she fights her way in. And here we've got a tale of two Hamiltons. As a uh, Richard Schiff there on the well, that's Maloney right there, Colonel Hardy. That's a uh, Julian Alessandro. He was Doctor Professor Hamilton in Smallville. In the latter seasons. So like I said, we've got the tale of two Hamiltons in this scene. We're on the uh, ice world of Hoth right here. Well, there's, there's Clark again, just kind of walking through. Trying to figure out what he's just doing his job. Yeah. I like the... Uh, she's very sarcastic with Maloney, and he just... Kind of putting up with her. He has, has the first uh, big product placement. Oh, that's a nice camera. I wish I had one of those. But for my own reporting, it's clearly a Nikon. And after dark, you know, she's doing what Lois Lane does. She is going to check out the scene of the excavation, getting pictures. You know, this is something you. A lot of times, you know, you would expect. Jimmy Olsen to and she just saw Clark on her camera she uh you would see Jimmy Olsen with her but you know 
as someone who works in newspapers myself, the uh, the staff photographer is kind of going the way of the dodo, where reporters are expected to kind of do more and not only write, but also take photos as well. So I don't think that was what was being considered when uh, shooting this scene, but nobody needs just to have Lois do everything. That's a nice, that cavern is a little too, uh, it's Clark melting the ice there. Good shot of his heat vision. We'll see better later on in the film. And uh, and he's found the Kryptonian scout ship. There was a prequel comic that came out shortly before this film that explained the origin of this scout ship. That was one of the many that Krypton sent out back in their colonization days, 18,000 years earlier. And so he's going to look around and he's going to do some exploring. At some point here, oh, he's going to find his little command console. And he's going to find, ooh, look at that. I might have something that fits here right around my neck. And he's going to put it in. Because hey, it looks like it fits. And now his robot here is coming up behind him. And he looks a little freaked out. He's like, oh, that hurt. Probably the first thing that hurt him in a while. It's obviously prevent trying to, it's trying to prevent him from... And he turns the ship on. And the robot kind of is going away now. And he gets his first glimpse of somebody. He doesn't quite know who it is yet. Is Lois strategically placing her Nikon right in front of the camera so we get a cool view of the brand? It is a Nikon 3DS, I believe that was. No. 3SD, I believe. Well, Nikon 3, I'll just leave it at that. Probably a very nice camera. One I probably wouldn't mind using for my own reporting, but that's probably not within my budget. Now, this ship is very cavernous, you know, well designed. Can't see much, but that's okay. Not much to see, really. Just icy walls. Now it's Lois's turn to uh, mess with the robotic sentry here. As Clark finds the pods. One of which is... Well, not this one. That, that She didn't make it, or he didn't make it. Hard to tell. There's the open pod that... People believe with a character named Kara from the prequel comic, who was rumored to be Supergirl, although there's been nothing substantial to verify that. And this robot does not like the Flash. He breaks the camera, knocks her across the room, and that's kind of the end of that, at least of the camera. Oh man, Superman's first save of the day, even before his costume. As he's going to wrestle this robot here and squish it. Looks like a big fish. And Lois is understandably freaking out. Because that's their first meeting between Clark and Lois. And uh, she's been punctured by 
punctured by the robot, and he's gonna cauterize her wound. I love that line that he can do things that other people can't. <laughs> She's very blunt, too. This is gonna hurt. And she clearly believes him. She's screaming like hell. Now, I can only assume that he is going to drop her off somewhere else before he uh, continues with what he's doing. As the uh, room starts vibrating around uh, not Professor Hamilton. As we're looking and seeing that the machine, uh, the spaceship is departing. It's right at the nice shot of the dust being kicked up by the ship as it rises up out of the ice. I wish I could get my car to move that well when it's icy. It takes me 20 minutes to get the ice off my car sometimes here in the wonderful, wonderful Northeast. And the ship is off. Well. Lois, now we get a voiceover from Lois telling the story of of what happened. And we're going to shortly get... And this is where we can see that Lois is getting her first clue that something is not quite right about her rescuer, who she's going to encounter later. And now Lois is back in... Metropolis. Again, not sure how much time has passed here. And there's this is this is our first look here at Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White. And Lois and he are having a very Lois and Perry talk. She is Lois, who has a Pulitzer Prize. She is fighting for her story while Perry is taking the larger view of having to you know, kind of protect the integrity of the planet while he tries to appease Lois. But he's not going to run it. And she's pissed. And Lois is doing something underhanded. Because the story needs to get out. So she's giving it to this uh, sniveling little dweeb here, Woodburn. Which is a company, his name Woodburn is a combination of Woodward and Bernstein, who broke the Watergate scandal that caused the resignation of President Nixon back in the 70s. And Lois has no problem down in that scotch. And here's a panda bear. And there's the ship. It is quite unclear how long Clark has been, how long Clark has been hanging around in this ship. But he looks just as clueless now as he did when he got there. And he gets another glimpse of somebody he doesn't know. Who he's about to find out is his father. And natu naturally, Clark has lots of questions. I'm your father. Very matter of fact. Oh. You know, I can only imagine what's going through Clark's mind here as he's finally learning his true origins after so long thinking his name is Clark. 
And he's kind of got this little smirk, smirk on his face as he learns who he is. Everybody have a lot of questions too. Naturally, he wants to know it all. So, what Russell Crowe is about to do is he's going to launch into a very long expositional speech, complete with uh, visual aids. As we see Krypton, we see representations of Krypton's history. It's all very uh, looks like it's almost like in liquid metal, so to speak. Three three dimensional images of. Uh, the history of Krypton. An image of a world engine talking about the Kryptonian terraforming initiatives to make the world more suitable for for them, which will come into play later. Here you see more of the council with their giant hats. Yep, here, here's the bit about the artificial population control and the birthing matrices. That he basically, Jarrell is basically saying that the uh, the Kryptonians killed their planet. This is just a long expositional sequence. There's a nice image of Zod here in the uh, Kryptonian uh, history models. You know. Without these visual aids in the background, this would just be one long, boring, expositional sequence. Look, you know, as we would call when reading comics sometimes, just an expositional plot dump. And then there's the Genesis Chamber. This is where Clark learns that he was Krypton's first natural birth. He's just looking at this in astonishment, I, would only, I can only imagine. You know, and that's kind of... And the core of what Jorel wanted to do is he wanted Clark to be, or Kal-El rather, to have a choice in what he became. Everybody else was born into a role and into a predetermined role from birth. It's really about wanting Kal-El to forge his own destiny instead of some prescribed one. Love and all that was a Feelings of the heart were things that were frowned upon in Burns Krypton, as was physical touch. You know, just a very cold planet. And we're about to uh, get our first look at the Superman costume right back behind here. Now, obviously, this suit is different from what we're used to, the trunks are gone, and there's the blackish embellishment around the midsection and on the arms. You know, in motion, in motion it looks fine, especially in the shots where it's chest up, but, you know, if you see a long shot of him, you know, as someone who's been used to the trunks for 70 or so years, it's tough to let go. And we're going with the modern interpretation of the symbol of the House of L being a Kryptonian symbol for hope. That I don't remember where that was established, but it's long been believed that I love this shot here of Superman coming out of the shipping costume for the first time. Beautiful epic shot of him standing in front of the mountains. He's 
almost a Fleischer-esque shot of him in silhouette. A lot of Jarrell's speech here is taken from Graham Morrison's All-Star Superman. Color tones are very dark. Cape's a little bit long. It's amazing he doesn't trip over it. And then he's going to... Geraltia told him a lot about testing his limits. So he's going to leap here for the first time. Well, he's going to try... He's leaping an eighth of a mile. Kind of a neat progression of how his ability to fly has developed through the ages. Through the decades in the comics. You can see here he's trying to fly. And it looks like he's got it. But... He's about to lose it. And, and there he goes. He's going to crash down to, to the planet. And plop. Basically, I kind of like that. And here he comes, clawing himself back up. Now this is the part that was... If you listen to the dialogue here, this is what was adapted, let's say, from All-Star Superman. They'll stumble. They will fall. One time they, they will join you in the sun. In time. They will help you accomplish. Or accomplish wonders. I love that dialogue. Works just as well here as it did in All-Star Superman. And I love this shot of him before he takes off for the first time. As, he, as the rocks move around him as he pushes off. Leaving a little crack in the ground, and you know, people have described this film as joyless. Well, you know what? They must have the people who feel that way must have slept through this sequence. He's got this ear-to-ear -ear grin as he realizes he can fly, and you know what? Why wouldn't you? That has got to be the most awesome feeling in the world, being free of Earth's gravity. You know, it's just great. A lot, a lot of long shots of him flying over various landscapes, rocks, ocean, mountains. I love the Superman around the world shot. And you could tell with the smile, he's loving it too. This first flight. There's always something to behold. Here he goes. He's going to fly up into space here. You know. Just a very beautiful shot. In space and back toward the Earth. Just can't get enough of that. Now, one thing this movie showed very well. It showed shows Lois backtracking to find out to find Clark through his origins. You know, the other films didn't really show a lot of Lois reporting. And here's Pete Ross working in IHOP, I believe. So she has tracked Clark all the way back to the bus, back to the bus incident that we saw earlier in the film. Here's Lois showing up at Martha's. 
and I'm about to ask about Clark. And we never really get to see what she actually says. We don't know how Lois knew to come here to look. Did Martha send her here, or did she just kind of follow the, the tracks? And she found him. Coming up is a flashback that's going that caused a lot of consternation over Clark's actions in the past. Right now, he's very reticent, doesn't want to come out as as Superman, and she's starting to drag him out of his shell a little bit. And now he's gonna he's gonna talk about what his father believed. And he's reiterating what Jonathan had told him that he felt people would be afraid of Clark. Now here we are. We've got Cavill playing 18-year-old Clark. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not buying Cavill as an 18-year-old in this scene, even though he was only 20-something at the end. You know, they mussed up his hair a little bit, put a Kansas shirt on him, but I'm not buying him as a teenager. You know, what we're going to see later when his father his father dies, then people say, well, why would Superman let that happen to his father? Well, this isn't Superman here. This is, despite the fact that 18-year-old Clark is being played by the, by the same actor who plays him as Superman, it doesn't mean he's Superman here. I think we tend to forget that he's 18. 17 or 18. I don't, one of the two. If you do the standard math. But here's Jonathan Kent taking charge. He is trying to save as many people as he can. He's going to try to save this couple's dog. You, oh, the daughter. Not the dog. He's going to go back for the dog later. As you can see, you know, this is consistent with the way Jonathan felt about possible, possibly letting the kids on the school bus die in order to protect Clark's secret. He knows that Clark can just go and get the dog. Because we have to save the dog. He. Oh boy, here comes that car. <clears throat> and now he's stuck. You know. I'm you know, Clark is doing what he's told. He is respecting his father's wishes. Right here. And you can tell this isn't easy for him. Now his dad's out of his his father's out of the car. Clark is protecting his mother. And you can see right here he's gonna move. Jonathan holds up the hand. Yep. He was willing to maybe let the kids on the bus die to protect Clark's secret. He's being consistent in that argument, 
and he is sacrificing his own life to protect the secret. So there's your answer that maybe you should he should let it, he let himself die to protect Clark's secret. And he explained why he did what he did. He did it because he trusted his father, right or wrong. I wish, perhaps, the the dialogue had not been that he let his father die. Maybe if they said he didn't save his father or something, maybe that would have helped. Maybe not, but it is what it is. If you ask me, it's consistent with the way Jonathan Kent was portrayed in this film. He believed that his life wasn't... Clark's secret being revealed wasn't worth his life. He gave his life to protect that secret. That's what he believed, so Clark respected his wishes. Now we're back on the planet because Lois is killing the story after Clark told uh, the story of his father's death, and Perry is unhappy. And he just suspended, suspended Lois for two weeks. So... Even even Perry is glad that she's killing the story because he's also concerned about what would happen if how the people would react if Superman were to appear in their midst. Alright, so now that that scene is over we are getting some nice windmill shots, some Style shot, close-up shots of the Ken farm as Martha looks up, and it's been a long time since since she's seen Clark's, who got dropped off on a Lexcore truck, ironically, and as we approach the hour mark of the movie, and this is the mother and son see each other again for the first time since. I don't know how long it's been since they left. It could have been shortly after high school. If that would have been the case. It's been about 15 years. So. Obviously, Martha didn't know that Clark would be at the cemetery. But, you know, she's happy for Martha's happy for him that he found out who his family is. You know, I'm not... Martha has mixed feelings about him finding out who his parents are because, you know, she's probably afraid that he shall, he'll no longer consider him her son. But that's not going to change much. You know, there are... I guess it's one of those things between ad adoptive parents always feel as though I can I could be wrong, but I'm sure there's an insecurity that some of them once they realize who their biological parents are that they might kinda of gravitate more toward them and away from the people that raised them. But that is clearly not the way Clark feels and not what he's gonna do, especially considering his parents are dead. Now again now he's yeah, like I just said, she's worried they're going to take her away. 
take him away. And he's convinced that at this point, he's going to move back home and he's going to be a farmer. And he is, at this point, content to live out his life in that fashion. And here is General Swanwick. Our first look at him, Harry Lennox as General Swan Swanwick. And they're taking a look at Professor Hamilton. And they're taking a look at the spaceship that is the Black Zero, which is carrying Zod and his people to Earth because, as we'll find out later, they saw the beacon that the scout ship set off. Sorry, it's almost one in the morning. So they see the ship. And, again, like I said, this movie had some issues with pacing. Because I don't know how long Clark has been at his farm before Swanwick and company spotted the ship. Here's Lois back at work, so clearly it's been two weeks, I think. Because she's back at work. You know, it's possible she's wearing the same outfit that she wore two weeks ago when she argued with Perry, but I'm not observant enough to remember what outfit she was wearing. Here's Clark drinking a bud. Apparently he knows Peyton Manning. So, <laughs> she sees it outside while Clark misses the, uh, the news report of the spaceship. Oh, I'm guessing that telescopic vision right there, he sees it. Um, Clark must recognize that as a Kryptonian ship from what he saw while he, his father was talking to him in the scout ship. And right here, this, this opening of this entrance is creepy. It knocks out the power to the Ken farm. Just the creepiness of the sound, that screeching sound. That's coming from the TV as a, the as the visitors broadcast that you are not alone message as they make first contact with Earth. You are not alone. Yeah, that's just what we that's what people wanted to hear. <clears throat> I'm sure after seeing all this, they'd rather be alone. Very creepy. Nobody and nobody really knows what to make of this. And as you can see, this movie this movie came out a year after the Avengers did. You know, I enjoyed the Avengers movie, don't get me wrong, but during the final sequence when the Shatari attacked New York, I never got the sense of scope that I got from this film. Well, you know, everything in the, in the Avengers seemed very, you know, centralized on Earth, but... Seeing that they, the, mul the, the multiple languages and the different locales to where people are receiving this message, it gives this film a little bit more of a worldwide uh, scope. Zod's speech is, is a little overwritten. As he traveled to an ocean of stars, Clark knows they're looking for Clark knows of Zod from his expositional speech from Jarrell. So he knows they're looking for him. <clears throat> Perry look gives Lois that look she knows. She knows. He knows that she knows. Like, uh, 
you know, low his lowest again. You know, she knows she is not going to hang around. He reacts quickly to his name being. Well, at least he gives him a time limit. Lois knows something's up, and she is gonna. She sees the light around the moon there. Uh, and there comes the light and scared the crap out of Martha. Dropped the fruit. And now she's at home. I'm guessing if she either left work right after that or a few hours have passed. Well, they got 24 hours, so maybe it's later that night before going to bed. And uh, Woodburn just uh, threw, Lois on, threw Lois under the bus here. And now Lois... Lois is now being uh, stubborn and revealing to uh, reveal where Kal El is, but uh, and the FBI has found Lois at home, and uh, I'm not, and they're chasing her, and uh, she managed to make it out of the building, which is nice. But what I'm not sure of is uh, why exactly is the Air Force is an Air Force colonel riding with the FBI. As we see him, we're going to see Colonel Hardy right there come out of the uh, come out of the truck. FBI and the military generally don't mix, at least as far as I know. Here's Clark in the church. This priest here is, people believe this priest has the same character as the uh, priest who appeared in the much maligned Superman for tomorrow. But before that, we get, we get treated to another flashback. Sullivan's garage in the background. That's probably a nod to uh, <clears throat> Chloe Sullivan from Smallville. In the comics of the late 90s, I believe, uh, Lois and Clark lived at 1938 Sullivan Place. Perhaps the name Sullivan is a little more important to Superman than I'm remembering. There's Jonathan in the background. I'm not exactly sure what this uh, flashback is supposed to be telling us other than that people are dicks. It could be just that because Clark doesn't seem to care much for them, for people in general. The way he's treated, I can't say I necessarily blame him. But, you know, Pete uh, shows that there is some hope for humanity after all. Bit a little on an isotome, at least privately. You know, the whole, this whole life Jonathan has been teaching Clark restraint, you know, to not fight back against people, to protect who he is. You know, and he's really, while he's guiding Clark, he's not guiding Clark to a particular destiny. He's guiding Clark to make his own choice, which, you know, kind of echoes that you are here for a reason. But nobody knows what that reason is. Clark is looking for some guidance. And he tells the priest here that 
he is the person they're looking for. You can tell the priest gets a kind of a swallow right after Clark tells him that. He's, he's, for a minute, you almost think he's considered cult turning him in. You know, but he, uh, he's the one who puts the idea in Clark's head that, you know, Clark wants to say he wants to do what's right. So he's going to try to save the Earth. But Clark is struggling because he doesn't trust Zod or really the humans that have treated him like crap all his life. Where the priest here gives him some good advice about taking a leap of faith and developing trust over time. Trust comes later. Well, and apparently these words have had some effect because we have another hard cut and we're here to some tanks pointing at something, which we don't know yet. Oh, now we know. There's a cape. So there he is, Superman, hanging in the air. You know, this movie, a dissolver two wouldn't have hurt this movie. I love this shot of Superman uh, standing in the, or hovering in the sunlight. He's going to turn himself over to the military, but he has some terms that he wants. He wants... He wants Lois to be freed. And there he is. Superman is in handcuffs. Being led away. Lois mistakenly pointed out that he surrendered to Zod. When Superman illustrates the point that he didn't. He wants to surrender to Earth. And he wants humanity to make its own decision. Which is not dissimilar to what Jonathan wanted for Clark. He wanted Clark to make his own decision. Unfortunately, the kind of the decision was made for him. And here's the bit about the S. You can tell right here, she interprets the symbol on his chest as an S. And she's just about to name him Superman when... When Professor Hamilton... And Professor Hamilton kind of interrupts. Superman <laughs> freaks them out by... It's freaking Hamilton out by... Uh, freaking them all out, really, by uh, illustrating what's in the room with him. And he, he reveals that Superman's been on Earth 33 years. And, Okay. Oh, sorry. I got caught. I caught them watching the movie again. <laughs> they freak out. They freak out. All back away as he as he um, does the handcuffs, and he's trying to reason with the military, <clears throat> but he is uh, going to respect humanity's wishes, and he is going to let them turn him over to Zod again. Another hard cut, and we're standing in the middle of the desert. You know, like I said, just a dissolve or two to uh, illustrate the passage of time would have gone a long way <clears throat> in uh, helping the pacing of this movie, just showing the fact that time has passed. And uh, we're, we're about to tender a moment here between Lois and Superman.
he appreciates everything that she has not done for him, as far as not released the story. And here comes uh, Zod and his friends. <laughs> his love's being stubborn and not listening to Superman, as he has to tell her several times to go. You know, I'm well. I don't miss the trunks so much. I miss the yellow S in the back of the cape. You know, Superman Returns got rid of it, and it's kind of been gone ever since. Even the comics have uh, muted the S somewhat by turning it black, black on red. I love the look of determination in his face. Superman is waiting. He he knows what the them turning him over to her is um, turning him over to Zod is a mistake, but he's willing to do it anyway. Because he's showing the people of Earth that he can be trusted. And well the common trope in superhero films where the hero turns himself over to the enemy in order to save the the people, and well, it it never go it never goes well, and right now Zod is already is going to show his first uh, sign that he's somewhat dishonest because not only is he taking Superman with him. But he's also demanding Lois go with him. And right here, they're still not really comfortable with Superman. Colonel Hardy kind of sneers and says to give him the alien. Lois, meanwhile, knows what these people can do. And like Superman, she doesn't want to take any chances that that they're going to renege on there promise to leave Earth, leave Earth in peace if they haven't. So, like Superman, she's giving herself up for the greater good of Earth. So, very noble on her part. Very, very Lois Lane. That's definitely something you can see Lois doing. And now that Fiora is gone, the plan starts in motion. If there is a plan, Superman hands Lois the key and tells her to hide it. Very subtle looks from her, from Cavill to Amy Adams there. There's the scene here where she puts the breather on her. I, I saw this, the picture of her putting the breather on in magazines. I always wondered the context of that, being that I knew Feyora was an enemy, was a villain. So, that's that. I always wondered, I saw that picture many times before this film came out in magazines and on various websites and whatnot. I find it interesting. It's an interesting interpretation here, in the sense that the atmosphere of the ship takes away his powers. Takes away his powers, even though he's in the presence of a yellow sun. You can see it in his face right here as he's kind of, as he feels kind of strange. At first, I thought that. At first, I thought there was some kryptonite around, but I'm glad that wasn't the case. Especially when he said he felt strange. This is probably the first time he's felt 
sick or well, he's bleeding from the mouth too. Gross. You don't normally you don't normally see that from Superman. Looks like he's having a seizure. And she's doing a hell of a job calling him Clark. This wouldn't be the first, that's not the first time uh, Lois has uh, done that. We'll see more Grisha's uh, errors later. And we're treated to Clark and Clark sleeping on the grass. Apparently this is a dream sequence. Zod is wearing a cape. And apparently in his in his dream self, Clark sees himself as a Kansas City Royals fan. Which is difficult for me because I, I'm a Mets fan and I just watched the, the Mets uh, lose in five games of the World Series to the Royals a few months ago. And there, here we go to the second uh, expositional plot dump. This time it tells us what Zod and company have been up to since Krypton exploded. They got knocked out of the Phantom Zone by the destruction of the planet. And... You know, I'm glad that they used visuals to illustrate what they were up to while Zod narrates, because otherwise if Zod just sat there and... If he just sat there and looked at Michael Shannon... While he was giving us these, all this exposition, then it would have been quite less interesting. I find Michael Shannon's delivery rather dry. Maybe it's just me. I mean, he's a good actor, but I don't think he does uh, expo exposition extremely well. Not as well as uh, Russell Crowe did his Jarrell exposition a little while ago. But this is showing us how uh, Zod got his, the equipment that he has from the old Kryptonian colonies that have since died off. Now he's revealing what people are going to find out or believe that this is all Superman's fault. At least indirectly. He, uh, he lit the beacon that, well, he set off the beacon and Zod and company followed it to Earth. And this is where he learns that Zod is going to double-cross him. And double-cross the Earth. Because he's trying to bring back Krypton. And he wants it to live on Earth. And now he's... This is the part where... Superman is realizing that he made a mistake. And there's Zod wearing a cape there. Zod doesn't wear a cape very much. <sighs> Sorry about that. It's after one in the morning. But I'm doing this now, so I don't get interrupted by anyone else. I love this shot here of the of the ruined playground behind him with the dying yellow sun in the background and Clark just falling into the skulls of the human race. This is where he determines that he cannot go along with Zod's plan and he will not. And he wakes up to find himself restrained. 
and unable to break out. Now, apparently that was some kind of mental probe. So, he knows what happened. And that's where he just learned that Zod has killed his father. And he just said it, right? The only, his only duty is to Krypton. He, he doesn't want to rule the Earth. He wants to do what he thinks is best for Krypton. He's not the conqueror with dreams of conquest. And now, we're moving on to the next, uh, moving into the end of the second act here. As these two ships are going toward the Kent farm. Because they are looking for the codex in the capsule that brought Superman to Earth. Yep, they just. Yep, they're not answering. This is a Jack Zor here, played by Mackenzie Gray. He was actually in Smallville, he, where he played a clone of. Where he played a clone of Lex Luthor. There was actually, once he was cast, there was some speculation that he might be playing Lex Luthor. But obviously that's not the case, as we found, as Jesse Eisenberg will be playing Lex Luthor in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. All right, now Lois is in her cell here. She has clearly not been searched, as she still has the uh, flash drive that Superman handed to her. And apparently, all jail cells on Kryptonian ships have ports to put in your flash drive. Good to know if I'm ever arrested and put into a Kryptonian vessel. So, she has no idea what this is going to do, and she does it anyway. Good old Lois Lane. And she's going to realize that she is not alone. And... And we have another Joel hologram. I actually find this uh, secret a little amusing as Jorel guides her through the ship. And he is going to help Lois free Superman so they can do what they need to do. And here come those two ships. They're about to... They're taking their sweet time getting to Kansas. As they go toward the farm, Lois can now breathe. And Jarrell is giving her, giving her advice and helping her through the ship. Closing people off. Closing people off. Taking the gun. Lois, a woman of action here, as she should be. She is doing what she needs to do. And, alright, now Superman is getting his feet under him again. And Jack sort of doesn't know what's going on. Those ships are still flying. Nice shot at downtown Smallville. Lois isn't sure how to fire that thing. And Jarrell's got eyes everywhere. 
closing them off, getting them through the ship. Sending her off to safety. Russell Crowe is everywhere. Yep. Here you go. I like this. He said... <clears throat> Jarrell said very little to her about Phantom Drives, but... Uh, apparently that's enough for Lois to know later on how to get out of there. And this is this escape pod doesn't look like it's doing very well. Meanwhile, Clark is still getting off the table. Oh, they're all dead. Is that you again? <laughs> He's not given any answers. He's not yet. Love that shot as the air decompresses. Now the cape is fluttering in the decompression. Here's where we do the you can save them all. Oh, or all of them, not necessarily them all. Now, he apparently he chooses to leave the ship in a Christ pose, in the crucifixion pose, and uh, then turn his body. Apparently just diving out of the window isn't enough. We needed more Christ-like imagery. If we didn't get enough of that, Superman returns. So, meanwhile, here's Lois's pod is on fire in the atmosphere. He's chasing it. And I love the close-up of Superman as he's flying. He's very deliberate in his motions. He looks at her, he's taking forever. Punch, punches the hell out of that door and pulls her out at the last second. Very classic save. Shields her with, the, with his cape. With his back at the very least. And now they're landing. Now we're back at the Kent Farm and Martha is had not taken any crap from Kryptonians. And she should and where she should not. For my ally is the force. Oh no, sorry, wrong movie. You can tell that's on wires. They land very gently. Oh, and there he is. Superman saves somebody else. That's at least two people we've seen him save. More if he has people on the right. Okay, she's freaking out because he. <clears throat> As a Superman Cavill is far less awkward than Brandon Routh was in the role. Uh oh. Something's wrong. Randy flies off. We got leaving low, kind of leaving Lois in the middle of a cornfield. Fortunately, there happens to be a sheriff's deputy coming down the road here. They look absolutely ominous in these masks. I love the costume design in this movie. Again, they go to hell. Martha's not taking any of Zod's crap, and Feyre is not taking any of Martha's crap. With a slight hand across the uh, the throat, that's throat. And not to be satisfied by merely walking into the barn, Fiora does a big leap and finds the ship and tears it open.
and nobody's home. So that's not good news for Zod and company. And Zod reacts as anybody would in that situation by throwing a truck into the master bedroom. And people say, I have temper issues sometimes. Where is the codex? And not there. And here is Superman having no regard for anything else and just beating the holy hell out of Zod here. Apparently, Superman is left-handed. That's a good left jab right to his face. Very single-minded here. Well, so much for so much for this 7-Eleven. Skip the. All right. Well, what, and what kind of superhero movie would it be if things didn't blow up? The visuals are nice. Love the way the mask is flickering around Zod's face right here. And there goes his cape. Kind of uh, reminiscent of the post-crisis comics where the first thing that always burned off Superman was his face. Well, was his cape. Not his face. That'd be something else. I like how when, when Zod is first exposed to the Earth air, the sensory overload is, uh, is too much for him. He can't handle the hearing and seeing all the various spectrums that he can now see. And he and Superman is enjoying it. And now here's a bigger ship and it blasts Superman right into a truck. Well, it's a good thing that they came to rescue Zod because otherwise it'd be a very short fight and we might not have the rest of the movie. Zod is pissed. And they leave in their ship. And this is where next we're about to have a battle on the Smallville Main Street here. Main Street, USA. Very western. As though the gunfighters in the, in the middle of the street. Yep, get inside. Close up. Oh, there he goes. He's warning people to get inside. Saving more lives. <clears throat> Alright, now has the military is finally getting up, getting into things. I enjoyed Chris Maloney's performance in in this movie. And in a few in a few minutes we'll see why. Well, one of the things I enjoyed about it. He got he got some juicy stuff for a human and you could tell by the end of the movie he is just absolutely sick of Feora. And the humans don't know who to shoot, so they're going to do what anybody else would do in this situation. They're going to shoot everybody. Because they, they, I'll be honest, they don't know Superman's motives either. They just know that he went up to the ship, and they now they know that he's back. Now, he, eventually the pilots are going to see that Superman is fighting these guys, and uh, this guy is huge. And here we go. This is the clue. And there goes this plane. He is, uh, took care of that. More destruction. Well, this is the first of the destruction we're going to see in this film. They just launched. Oh, nice save by Superman there. Right, right into IOP. 
into Pete Ross's place of employment. The guy just can't catch a break. Pete's looking at him like, no, I, I know him, don't I? This is the this is clearly the first time Clark has ever been in a fight of any kind because he well, he's throwing some punches, but he's getting his butt kicked. So right here, Feora is taunting him with Krypton the Kryptonian uh, lack of morality, which is an evolutionary advantage. There's that bank vault that we saw in the first, very first promotional shot for the film, way back when. She she puts the lion in, in his head for every one person he... Was that here? Or maybe it's later. That for every one person they save, she'll kill a million more. Ooh, that, nice interception, but I believe that's Namek, who is huge and large and in charge and kicking the holy hell out of Superman here. Now, a lot of people say that during the fight, Superman should have done this, Superman should have done that. Well, you know what? There's not really any indication that Superman had any control over anything that happened to him in this fight. Well, he got up just so he could get kicked into the ground again. And he's he is clearly in over his head. <clears throat> and I like that. I like that he's having difficulty f with this because he should. You know, granted, he's in he's in the suit. Yes, he's acting as Superman, but this is the first time he's ever been in a situation like this, and he's desperate. That's where that person he vision came from, and he is still one of the targets. <laughs> now here is a. Superman is still somewhat reacting to the bullets hitting him. He, Superman didn't make much of a move at the U-Haul being thrown into the helicopter. There, but he does go catch this guy. Who's falling down. Yeah, he's shooting. And Superman takes another one on the chin. Here come Fiora's sizing up Maloney's chopper. Colonel Hardy is the actor's name is Chris Maloney. And Feora has a whole bunch of soldiers in front of her. They appear to be outnumbered. Because she is just going to go through and she's going to kick all their asses dom like dominoes. Very fast. Made light work out of all of them. Kind of reminds me of the Supergirl saga where you don't see something like that here, but there was one scene where Feora just punched someone's head clear off. And Colonel Hardy is basically called in a bombing run on his location, so he's pretty sure he's going to die in a few minutes. Or sooner. He's shooting at Feora. Both having no effect. And she's just got this grin on her face. Like she knows she has him where she wants him. Superman, meanwhile, is having some trouble with the Namek. Uh, knocks him into a train, so. Really, Colonel Hardy, what is that knife going to do for you? She's got a bigger one, and she's got superpowers. 
I think you're in trouble. A good death is its own reward. I personally beg to differ. And Superman saves Colonel Hardy. And he looks shocked. And now she is having a mask malfunction. <clears throat> oh, here's the line about the... the save one, we'll kill a million more. But she is... Out. She's having that same sense of overload. And here comes the train! Knocking Superman into more product placement. Or the Sears Superstore, one of the two. And... Fiora just got hit with a missile. And there go the planes. Lots of destruction. Basically, you know, what you would expect when beings of that power, that kind of power, fight each other. It happened in the comics all the time. Remember during the Doomsday story arc? You know, nobody complained when half of Metropolis was destroyed in that story. Hell, even Superman was destroyed in that story, so. Can't please everybody, but alright, right here. This is my favorite scene in the movie. This is where he takes his place as Superman, so to speak. Comes out, boy, he sees his boots and the soldiers in the background. A great shot. Love that look. He is not sure. And the soldiers aren't sure either. Except for those two on the right. They very slowly start lowering their weapons. They know. They know that he fought beside them. Now they're still nervous about him. And rightly so. They know nothing about him. But he's shown them. That he's on their side. And right here. Colonel Hardy. Comes through with my favorite line in the movie. Wait for it. Is not our enemy. I just love that. You know, a very brief thank you. A handshake there would have been nice. But Colonel Hardy recognizes that Superman is on their side, and I gotta believe that that's he's instrumental in in a few scenes getting General Swanwick to go along with. Uh, Superman's plan for the to use the Phantom Drive to get rid of the Kryptonians. And well, that house is now a mess. And and I believe the truck is still in the master bedroom. And Clark is taking is sorry he's taking the blame for it. She's not blaming him in the slightest. Clark has his doubts about... Clark doesn't really know what the Codex is. But... He knows that the Kryptonians aren't going to... Now, Lois, she called him Clark. The deputy is not that far away. So he might know who Superman is. And now... We're about to head into the third act. Where... Jack Sewer is going to reveal... What we know... The whole movie that... Jorel has downloaded the codex into Kal-El as a baby, like we saw there in the beginning of the film. And 
and Lois is going to fill Superman in on the uh, what to do with the bomber. And we just learned that Clark does not have to be alive. So Zod knows that he can kill Superman and get what he needs. So they are now going to release the world engine upon the world. It's going to descend into the area of the Indian Ocean. As, well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. As uh, Professor Hamilton will reveal shortly, what's going to happen at this point? So another beautiful view of Earth there. Oh, here we go. All right. It's, it's, it's moving. Up oh, and here's. Pretty soon we're going to get our first. Uh, all right, so one is going to the Indian Ocean. We're about to get our first. Uh, Sign of Superman here. Is the world engine crashing into the Indian Ocean right here? Boom, looks like a giant claw. And this is going to head into. And it's heading over Metropolis. You know, apparently it's going to pick on Metropolis for really arbitrary reasons. That's kind of. Just where it's it's landed, nothing has shown that Superman has any connection to Metropolis at all with Lois. Maybe they downloaded Metropolis from Lois's mind. I don't know, but for whatever reason, that's not explained in in story. Zod has decided to pick on Metropolis. So big ugly thing hanging out there. Looks like looks like a big claw. And right here, they're bringing it online. They're turning, they're turning it on, and sending a big energy. All right, both of them are on. Stuff is start is about to go down. You can see it's already starting to vaporize the oceans a little bit from the heat. The ocean, beautiful shadow. They're now slave to the world engine. So they turn the world engine on, and the terraforming of the planet has begun. I love how it lifts everything up and then slams it all down, just flattens everything in its sight. And a lot of people who saw the movie kind of blame Superman for all this, which I don't really see him causing all this, at the moment at least. Man, this seems to be mostly the world engine. Right here is where Hamilton determines what exactly is happening to the Earth. That they're going to turn it into a new Krypton. And this little captain here is horrified to realize that Zod's plans don't necessarily include the rest of humanity. As that it won't be in us. They've got Superman into Superman at first uh 
They're calling him Superman. So, that is the first in-story reference to the word Superman. I wonder how that name came about. Lois was clearly with the soldiers, so I always kind of believe that Lois is the one to coin the phrase. Now they're Superman showing his brains. He's showing that he uh, knows what's going on. General Hardy, Colonel Hardy's on board with Superman's plan. So, Swanwick agrees because he's really got no other choice. And the world engine might weaken Superman here. And, well, in true Superman fashion, he is... Going to try to stop it. Yeah, a little humorous bit there. Smart from Lois, he tells her to stand back as he takes off. You know, th there wasn't any laugh-out-loud humor in this movie, but there was subtle humor, visual cues and stuff like that. I love this shot of Superman flying, the, the sonic boom behind behind them. Just great visual. You know, Lois and... Not Lois and Clark. Uh, Superman Returns was really the first one to do the sonic boom as well. One thing that we did do well. The sonic boom that Superman was flying. But Zod is still continuing with his plan to terraform the Earth. The military is uh, about to do its thing. You know, Superman is working with the people of the world. That's what he should be doing. and you know, I don't really believe that Zack Snyder changed the character in any way. You know, other people have called him thuggish. I don't see that either. You know, I like Cavill in the role. He's, you know, he's got a charm that Brendan Routh just lacked. You know, and he, and he has a, a commanding presence not too dissimilar from the presence that Christopher Reeve showed. You know, he... he Henry Cavill is owning the role of Superman. And I hope to see him continue to own that in uh, Batman v Superman and the upcoming Justice League and whatever, other, and whatever other films he may portray Superman in. And right there, Zod just... <clears throat> Zod just figured out his powers. He adjusted. And he is... How did he get the command key? Or is he uploading his own? And we have Live Zod talking to Dead Jarrell, who, who, as he points out, continues to haunt him. And this is, I love how, well, we'll come back to that when we get back to the scene. Superman is approaching the world engine, and he's approaching it in a in a falling type of fashion. And as you can see, it's cooking the ocean. Pulsing out. <clears throat> and the machine is going to send some stuff out at him. These bear an eerie resemblance to uh, the Dr. Octopus legs from Spider-Man 2. Alright, the military is... 
the, the military is about to fuck. This kind of reminds me of Independence Day a little bit. If they fire on, if they all unload on the world engine and show that it has no effect, not even hitting the machine. Well, it's hitting the ground, though. Oh. Can you closer? Here. That's the bald guy is uh, Steve Lombard, who appeared in a lot of silver and bronze age Superman comics, especially after you know when Julie Schwartz took over, he put Superman in WGBS. Who Lombard was a character who constantly heckled Clark. So it's going to be interesting to see if he's even in further films and how that relationship may or may not continue. And if it doesn't, it's kind of a waste of even using Steve Lombard. So Metropolis is under siege, under attack. Buildings are falling left and right. This is all clearly Superman's fault. <clears throat> because he turned on he did not turn on the world engine. But they're trying to get away. But really, there's no way to run. I can see where people were concerned that people wanted to scream about these things. It is a very 9-11 feel. Especially right here as the building collapsed and they're, and they're running away. <coughs> Not used to talking this much. Back to Jarrell and Zod. Uh, they're arguing over over the merits of genocide. Obviously, Jarrell falls on the side of genocide is bad, while Zod is hooked to the past and trying to do nothing. All he cares about is recreating Krypton, and he'll do anything required to do that. Right there, Jar Jarrell says... To Zod that Kal-El is twice the man he is and uh, Zod doesn't like that. And that's the final cue he needs to turn the uh, the machine off. Where he's trying to get his revenge by telling him of, that he's going to kill Superman and all the horrible things he's going to do to him after that. As Jarrell, then Jarrell fades away, never to be seen again. <clears throat> and you can tell there's a tinge of, of regret there in Zod's eyes. I, you know, for all his faults and obsessions, I think Zod doesn't want to kill any Kryptonians, especially now that there are so few left. Meanwhile, Superman is still having trouble with Dr. Octopus here. <coughs> and he's coughing in the acrid smoke. Kind of like I am, because I've been talking for two hours. Almost. How much more do I have to go? I still got another half hour of talking to go. Well, he's now... A lot of people have said that in the... Well, we'll come back to that. The shot of the Christopher Reeve shot... Now we realize that Jenny is stuck. Yeah, very. she is very stuck. 
I love this how <laughs> he calls Lombard, who's not happy about having being recruited to help, but he is. <laughs> I never got the impression that Lombard wanted to really wanted to help with this. But he's doing it. He's doing what's got to be done. You know, they show Lombard. You'll see Lombard later on uh, peddling some basketball tickets, and uh, he tries to fence himself a lady. Now, here's what I was talking about: Superman is flying up into the uh, bowels of the uh, world, into the light ray of the world engine here. Well, he's standing up. He's. I don't think he's flying just yet. But right when he looks up, there's a. Uh, <clears throat> going to be a scene where Cavill's face seems to be momentarily right here, where it looks for a minute as though his face is replaced with Christopher Reeve. Filmmakers say it isn't. It's just you know, some people see. You, you take what you choose to take from it. You know, my, my mother said, I'll never forget that my mother said, uh, Brandon Rouse looked like Christopher Reeve. And, you know, that's something a lot of people said. But, you know, I told her. You know what? They both played Superman. Superman has certain facial characteristics. So it's... Actors who play Superman are going to resemble each other. And look at that. Superman just destroyed the world engine and he saved Jenny. Now, a lot of people give this mo the ending sequence a lot of crap because... We don't see Superman saving anybody throughout the course of his battle with Zod. I think if they had let Superman pull the rubble off of Jenny and dig her out and not let not show that humans can do things for themselves, that might have gone a long way toward uh, leaving that. At least in my eyes. Oh, I love this shot here as... He, the sun comes up, restoring him, and he reaches for it. It's a, another beautiful shot. The movie is visually beautiful, regardless of what you think about the story. I, <clears throat> but lots of, but it does have, it does have pacing issues throughout, and they don't go away. It it's not a perfect film, but it's enjoyable enough. <sighs> and of course, uh, after a whole movie of. And of course, after a whole film of that flash drive going in, <laughs> going in automatically on its own, now the damn thing is going to be stubborn. Going to, just going to show that Kryptonian computers are really no better than human ones. Apparently, they both suck. Yeah. Yep. And here comes Zod in the world engine. Not the world engine, the uh, scout ship. And uh, Superman shouldn't be far behind here. Yep, he's about to shoot down the ship. He's about to shoot down the plane. And up oh, here comes Superman. Great shot of him flying over Metropolis, taking out the. Uh, he's about to take out the ship. Zod is pleading with him not to destroy the ship. Because he knows Krypt the world engine's gone. He knows Krypton is on its way. Superman is willing to sacrifice the remainder of Krypton for Earth to be saved. 
but at least not this section of Metropolis that the ship is going to crash into. All right, they got Jenny out. Perry and Lombard got Jimmy, got Jenny out, and uh, the ship is going to crash into Metropolis. Now, and to be recovered later. Now, as far as Jenny goes, there was some talk early on during the production of the film that Jenny was an Olsen, but that is not the case as in the credits she is given uh, another last name. I don't believe IMDB has it, but I'll take a quick look. Let's see. Nope, it just lists Rebecca Rebecca Bowler as Jenny. So here we go. Here is Fiora on the airplane, and like I said before, by now Colonel Hardy has got to be absolutely sick of Fiora. <sighs> He's got that look. God damn it. I want no more of that woman. And Professor Hamilton is going to finally get that stupid flash drive to cooperate. Well, there's our first broken neck of the film. And now he gets it to go in. And Colonel Hardy's going to get the last laugh as he plunges the plane into the black zero. Lois is doing what she does best. She's going to fall out of the sh out of the plane. And the Kryptonians are getting sucked back into the phantom zone in, a, in another beautiful effect shot. And I love this here. Superman is going to claw his way out of the ship. And look, and he's going to save Lois because, and he's having a struggle here trying to fly away from the the Phantom Zone. You can see that it's kind of trying to grab him and pull him in. We're going to get another one of those cavalry screams as he flies away. And everything is gone. It stopped. There is now a giant... Half of Metropolis has been, well, I don't know about half, but this giant section of Metropolis has been absolutely leveled by the World Engine. And apparently uh, Superman and Lois are having, are losing themselves here in, in, a, rush, in a rush of adrenaline. Lombard's <laughs> like, what the, Lombard and like, what the hell's going on over here? Are they going to see Superman for the first time? Jenny realize Jenny's going to realize that he saved them with help from uh, the, the armed forces. I never quite get what he says in that line. One of these days, I have to put the subtitles on to figure out what this line is. All right, this is just chilling right here. This is where Michael Shannon really shines. You know, he is just, Zod is just absolutely distraught here, you know. His entire world has just crashed around him. 
mostly uh, thanks to Superman. Uh, yeah, he's uh, illustrating that his, in his narrow worldview, without without Krypton, he has no reason to exist. So, to me, this uh, brings into the eventual death by cop argument that Zod, right now, he cannot be bargained with. He cannot be reasoned with. He doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And he absolutely will not stop ever until Superman is dead. Oh, wait a minute. I think I uh, crossed the streams a little bit there and uh, launched into a Terminator. Uh, wrong franchise. Uh, won't happen again. All right. You can... This walk here looks completely unnatural. The, the effect of Zod walking is just awful. It doesn't look very natural or fluid or anything. And now, now we're into the final fight. Most people, I believe, are ready to tap out of the action by, by now. Most of these buildings are empty, so I'm not exactly sure how many people have died or will die during the fight with Zod. This is, we find out from the trailers for Batman v Superman, that this is the Wayne Financial Building. And this, apparently, is why Bruce Wayne is so upset. So that, so that's that, that, Building falling down right there is Wayne Financial. And Bruce Wayne is here somewhere, too. We just never get to see him. But there are, you can see there are a lot of people hanging around during during this fight. You know, Zod doesn't care. Zod is just going to destroy everything. There's a LexCorp truck that just blew up. And here goes, there goes the car park with whomever might still be in there. You know, I'm kind of making the naysayers argument for them. But but I'm not sure what Superman can do for any of these people other than fight Zod. Zod is the main threat. If he leaves Zod to go pull people out of rubble, Zod is going to just respond by taking out other people. Right. So either one. So... One of them has to die. And that's kind of given Superman the idea of where this is going to go. You know, this is just you know, a lot of destruction. But, you know, like I said, I these are two immensely powerful beings. And I'm not sure <laughs> the gag with the sign there. I'm not sure what would, what else would happen if these two beings of this kind of power fought each other. It wouldn't be limit. It wouldn't be limited to one street and a couple Coca Cola signs like it was in Superman too. This too looks kind of funky when he pulls off the armor. Just, I don't know his body movements. Just I don't know. Don't look natural. 
the mocap just looks a little weird. I don't know if it's stiff or what, but it just doesn't look right. So we've eliminated the mocap problem by uh, now just putting Zod in his jumpsuit here. So now they can both fight in their long underwear. I love that. Superman punching Zod around the buildings. Now Zod, he, at this point, Zod is in complete control of his powers. I love the shot of them flying through. Zod has no regard for anything. And you can right now, Superman's pushing him. Superman is really getting his butt kicked here. You know, <clears throat> you know I'm not sure what kind of control kind of control he has in this fight, but Zod just showed uh, one of the disadvantages of having a cape. You know, yeah, Superman's causing some destruction there, but he's out of control. And now we're going into space. Can't do much damage out here. Oh, wait. Here's a Wayne Tech satellite. No, no wonder why Batman is so pissed. Not only, not only did he lose his, his uh, Wayne Financial Building, but he's also losing uh, that satellite. And here comes the pieces of the satellite, which I find it hard to believe that from space they'd, cra they'd crash into Metropolis, too. And now we're going into the train station where the last leg of this fight is going to be. The fight from Zod just doesn't seem as long as it seemed in the theater, but that's okay. But now we're at the end. At the controversial scene. Is the family kind of that kind of gets backs into the wall here. <clears throat> I'm not sure why they didn't move fast enough. But Superman is begging Zod not to, <clears throat> not to, not to fry these people in front of him. Apparently, it's not that far from the scene because Lois is there. Superman is still begging him to stop the as the heat vision beams get. Zod says never, and you know what? It's the, at this point, it's either Zod or them, and everybody. Well, a lot of people had, not everybody, a lot of people had issues with the nature in which Superman dispatches Zod. There are people that believe Superman should never kill under any circumstances. I don't necessarily fall into that camp. And you can see right here in, his, in the final cavil scream of the movie that Superman is upset about having to do what he did. But like I said, I do believe my own personal view, there are conditions under which Superman would take a life. I don't think he would kill to save himself, but I believe he could and probably would and probably should kill to save the lives of others. And that is what he did here. He made a choice in a split second. It was either break Zod's neck or let that family be killed, and I have trouble finding fault with his decision. It's not like Superman number 22, <laughs> Superman knocks his drone out of the sky, it's not like Superman 22 where Ju Superman defeated Zod and company and then murdered them with kryptonite. That was far more egregious than this, and that story is loved. I love this exchange here between Swanwick and Superman. 
there was. Where Superman is upset about uh, the military trying to figure out where he where he lives. So, at this point, <clears throat> Superman leaves far too many clues as to who he is laying around. He just here told Swanwick that he lived grew up in Kansas, but he's and he's willing to help. And he wants to convince. He's gonna. Superman wants. It says he's gonna just trust Swanwick. And he's gonna let, let the general chew on that. I like this right here. The captain here. She just. She just thinks he's kind of hot. You know, I remember in the in the theater when uh, when I saw this movie. There was silence from the moment Superman snaps out his neck to that scene. So, you know, the levity there came at the perfect time to break up the shock of of Superman killing Zod. Now I got another nice scene of Martha and Clark in the in the, in the cemetery by uh, Clark's uh, Jonathan's grave. Now, get a nice flashback of Clark chasing a dog, or playing with the dog, rather, as Jonathan fixes the truck. The truck here is blue. I'm used to the Ken's truck being red. But that's window dressing, neither here nor there. Martha's doing the laundry, as you can see. Just, you know, they're just watching them, you know, watching them, you know, as parents do. I like that he's got the red sheet attached to his back, standing in a classic uh, Superman pose. Dog is looking at him like he's nuts. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely find a job. Earn some money. Yeah, yeah. This, a lot of people speculated that the movie would end exactly the way it would with. Clark assuming, with him assuming the Clark Kent identity with the glasses. You can see him right here as he puts them on for the first time. Right there. <clears> There's <throat> Lombard still trying to work the crowd, trying to, trying to get tickets to a basketball game. Tries Jenny. And this is where they meet Clark Kent for the first time. <laughs> Lois knows who he is. Yeah. Love the line here. And that's where we end. With a, with, a, with a nice smile from Cavill. And that's that, you know. Like I said, this I enjoy this movie. It has its problems. You know, it has its flaws. I'm like, you know, the pacing is off. And, you know, I know Superman could be characterized better. But, you know what? This is really Superman day one, you know. 
everybody, you know, DC, it's big thing with Origins back in the 90s was year one. You know, Batman year one, there was a whole 1995, was a whole bunch of year one annuals. This was really Superman day one. To the point where we only got to see Superman's initial appearance. We didn't get to see any reaction to him or get to see him earn the trust of of the people. So, I think we would have been... Well, you, the thing is, it's easier to do something like that when you know you're coming back next week or you have another comic next month. I remember the Lois and Clark pilot in the early 90s when that came out, that was almost all Clark Kent at the planet, and you only saw Superman in the last... He only became Superman in the last 15 minutes. You know, something like that works when you're having an episode again next week. So the story will continue right away. You know, the problem here, Man of Steel came out in 2013, and here we are three years later, and we're just getting the next installment in a couple of days. An installment that, from everything I've seen, you know, I've seen all the trailers, and at this point, it seems like the rest of the world is reacting to Superman. I mean, obviously, he has been honored in some fashion as we see the shots of the arena with the Superman statue in front of it. But there is also a group of people that are wary of him and, you know, want the alien to go home. So, which obviously, obviously he can't. But, so it's going to be very interesting, at least for me, to see where the story goes from this point. You know, I know obviously right here in the cast, uh, Clark Kent Kal-El is Henry Cavill. Not mentioned at all as Superman. I'm sure there'll be more references to Superman in the next film. Now, what was I saying? I forgot what I was saying. So, like I said, I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes and how the universe expands from this. I mean, in, in a franchise that is going, that is basically more DC extended universe or cinematic universe, whatever it is they're going, they're going to go with, you know, this is, you know, this is the first, this is the launch. This is where it started. And obviously we're going to, branching off this Superman story, we're going to see Batman and Wonder Woman show up in Batman v Superman with some smatterings of Aquaman and the Flash and all that. You know, obviously, we've seen trailers for Suicide Squad, which is coming out in later this year, either either July or August, and that is in one of those trailers. We have seen. Amanda Waller say that it all started with Superman. He was the beacon. 
that kind of brought all these, all these guys out of the out of the woodwork. So every this film lays the groundwork for the extended uh, DC film universe. I mean, we've like I said, we've seen the Wayne Tech or Wayne Enterprises satellite get destroyed. I didn't point it out when we got to the film, but when we got to that point in the film, but there was an icon. It was a sign for Blaze Comics, which was in the Booster Gold books. So this movie, right from the get-go, indicated that there was an extended universe beyond just Superman. So I look forward in the coming months and over the next few years that there are these movies that to see the universe expand where Marvel has upped the game in regard to the shared universe where everything they're doing is one universe you know I'm glad to see DC kind of admit that there's kind of a multiverse out there with the, with the films and the so-called Legends of Flaro universe, which encompasses the Flash TV show, Arrow TV show, and the Legends of Tomorrow, as well as the universe inhabited by Supergirl. So, uh, my dream, and I'm sure this is never going to happen, I would love to see somewhere down the line a Crisis on Infinite Earths movie. Even though it would be bittersweet, as I know that we'd never be able to see Christopher Reeves' Superman appear in that. That's kind of the elder statesman. You know, something like that would have been kind of cool. You know, just a, you know. But I don't know what else, how much else I've got to say on this as the credits roll. You know, I really, I enjoyed this film when it came out. I still enjoy watching it. I believe the film is true to itself, even if it altered some of the characterizations that we're used to. Mainly Jonathan Kent. You know, still like him being a little more sure, but you know, I like the fact that he didn't have all the answers. You know, no one has all the answers. Not even, not even Superman, all the time. So, it showed a nice bit of human frailty. And, you know, there's always a part of me that likes to see the Kens survive because I grew up in that, I cut my teeth in comics in that post-crisis era where Superman was able to go see the Kens whenever he wanted, whenever he could fly and get the small villain. The Kents were always there for stage advice. So, for that reason alone, I would... I wish we could have seen more of Jonathan Kemp, but I'm looking forward to the fact that we will at least see uh, Diane Lane in the next film going forward. We've, she's she's going to be there. You know, the entire Superman cast is there, so I have a hard time looking at Batman v Superman as something other than a Superman movie. I, I mean, even the way it was introduced at Comic Con a few years ago, the first thing uh, Zack Snyder said was that we're doing another Superman movie. Now, everything from what I've seen le leaves me to believe that it's a very going to be a very Superman-centric film. 
I mean, we don't see any of Batman's villains. We don't. We're not going to see the Joker in it, as far as I know. You know, we're going to see some of Batman's world. You know, we're going to. We know that Batman's been kind of in business for a while, and he's had some loss. In one of the trailers, we saw a Robin costume defaced by the joke, by the Joker. At least we're assuming it was by the Joker. We know there's some history there from what we're going to see in the Suicide Squad movie, but. Yeah, but the, it seems like, from what I've seen in trailers, that the plot of BVS is going to pick up from the seeds that Man of Steel planted. You know, in my in my eyes, that's enough to to make it a sequel. It's it may not be the true standalone Superman film, but it seems to be like it's a Superman film with Batman in it. And, you know, I'm okay with that because I like Batman, too. You know, they were kind of, they were right there, one and two, growing up as comics. You know, when I, when I would get my comics when I was a kid, I read Superman first, and then I read Batman. So, Batman is, has, has always been a close second for me, and I'm sure there are, you know, I get tired of the, you know, you have to like one or the other. It's you know, it's I have room I have room in my life for both. And I wish other people did too. You know, so you can like one and not like the other. It doesn't have to be who would have been in a fight because you know what? I truly believe that neither one of them are gonna be put over. You know, I have a hard time believing DC is going to put over one over the other on film. But that kind of is where that is. You know, we're, we're all going to know for ourselves within the next couple of days as Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is going to hit this week. So I know I'm going to be out there seeing it. You know, it's Easter weekend, so I hope I can get, get to see it this weekend. If not this weekend, then I'm definitely going to be out there next weekend. But I'm going to be out there as soon as possible. I'll get my thoughts to you on it as soon as I can. Next week, we are going to return to our regularly scheduled programming, so to speak. I mean, this episode is dropping on a Thursday, so there won't be any interruption in in the schedule. But and I just finished this week with the Fleischer Short, so I'm going to be moving right along in next week's podcast with uh, like heading into the Kirk Allen movie serial, from the first one from 1948. So until next time, I will be around. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and no one else. All music is in the sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com, and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.